G'day, and welcome to My Favourite Album. I'm journalist and filmmaker Jeremy Dillon, and each episode I'll be talking to a different guest about an album they love and how it's influenced and inspired them. My guest today is a producer and director whose decades-long career in Hollywood has traversed a path from hit mainstream comedy franchises to the Oscar-winning Little Miss Sunshine, a documentary on global sneakers subcultures, and now the acclaimed thriller series Queen of the South, which airs Thursdays on USA and is currently in production on its fourth season. David Friendly, welcome to my favorite album. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for having me here. We're in in the Queen of the South offices here in uh, Sherman Oaks. Yes, we've been here for four years, and you're sitting in Kurt Sutter's old office. Kurt obviously created Sons of Anarchy, and it's been a lucky office for me now that we're entering our fourth season, and we're moving the show to New Orleans, a big music town, by the way. Yeah, yeah, I was there for the first time about a year ago. It was amazing. Did you go to Jazz Fest? I didn't. I was there at the the time of Jazz Fest, but for unrelated musical adventures. Interesting. This year, the Rolling Stones are headlining at Jazz Fest. Yeah, that's going to be something. They just keep on going. It seems like it. Right? Yeah. And I remember there was, a, there was a while they didn't tour for a long time, for almost, I guess, like four or five years, and everyone thought maybe they were done. And then 50th anniversary hits, and they've been pretty much touring nonstop ever since. They did a concert out here that I'm sure you were aware of, Desert Trip. I was there. And I wrote a piece about that for The Hollywood Reporter. I got to go and just experienced the whole thing. And then I wrote this, you know, 2000 word piece and it just, they were up against some pretty stiff competition. The who Dylan, Neil Young, they won the weekend and they just killed it. And, you know, it's interesting to me because I'm a big stones fan. I could have picked one of their albums for my favorite easily. And I was very excited when they opened the hard rock hotel in Las Vegas. And maybe it was like the early nineties and the headliners for the joint, which has a thousand capacity, were the Rolling Stones. And I thought, this is going to be the greatest show. And it was a stiff because Jagger just didn't care. Like this, you know, he <laughs> likes a big audience. So then you cut to Desert Trip, probably at least 20 years later, place was mobbed and they just, they came with it, you know, and he killed. So he, he, one thing I learned about some of these bigger bands, they like a big audience. And Jagger is just, I mean, you, d- you wouldn't think it when you look at him, but when he starts to move and from his performance, you would think he's like 33 or something. He's still physically flexible. He moves great. His voice is still very strong, I think. And, you know, people are coming for the hits, which is fine, but they do extend the songs and Keith still plays his ass off. I mean, they're a great live band still. Uh, they look a little different than when I saw him when I was 14 years old on the Lotus tour. which was the lotus tour was called that because the set started there was a a kind of like a big metal lotus flower that opened up and on the first song i looked up and mick jagger was like clinging to one of the lotus petals that was how the (laughs) show started that was pretty amazing anyway that was probably where the spinal tap 
clam thing came It probably from. was. That's actually a good point. Yeah. We all love Spinal Tap, right? Yeah. Well, the album we're talking about today isn't Spinal Tap or the Rolling Stones. David, what's your favorite album? Well, I chose a Steely Dan record, Asia, because I love Steely Dan, and I think this was the peak of their performance. I think it was them at their creative height. I hate this qualifier when I hear other guests do it, but I have to do it as well. (laughs) It's one of my favorites. I have many, many favorite albums, but of the Steely Dan library, which I know intimately, this is my favorite Steely Dan record, and, and I think it is in its own way, a bit of a classic. In the corner of my eye I saw you in Rudy's You were very high You were high It was a crying disgrace They saw your face On the counter By your keys Was a book of novel And your Well, let's go to your origin story with this record. It comes out in 1977. I guess you'd be, like, 21? I was, uh, yeah, that's about right. I was, uh, I think, a junior at the time at Northwestern University, where I happened to be promoting concerts there. That was my first gig. Didn't make any money at it, but I loved the job. I did 40 shows, and Steely Dan was almost a religious experience for me and my friends. We loved that band. We knew everything about them, and I would keep calling the agencies in L.A. and New York to say, I want to book Steely Dan, and they would say, Steely Dan are not a touring band. They're a studio band. So I never got to promote them, but when Asia came out, somebody in our little group of friends got an advance copy on a cassette and a group of us gathered in a circle in my kind of crappy apartment on Chicago Avenue. There was probably a joint lit up and we went through this record song by song. And it's really interesting because on first listen, it was very different than any of their other previous records. It was not nearly as popish. The hooks were not as obvious. So if you listen like the first song, Asia, It has jazz, it has rock, it has soul, and it has a Wayne Shorter sax solo in the middle for like two minutes. And we weren't really sure, but then the more we listened to it, the more we paid attention to it, the more the record grew on us. And I think it's a really spectacular piece of music. It really is an album that rewards repeated listens. I wonder sometimes if that was part of the way they conceived it, Mm -hmm. because it's so so dense. I mean, it's dense in terms of the parts, the layering of the different instruments on it, the precision and the the casting of it with the different musicians who they brought in for specific tracks, but also like the musical complexity and then the lyrics, which are often overlooked in Steely Dan songs. (laughs) Steely Dan lyrics could be a whole show for you. Trying to understand what these guys were saying was a fun guessing game for us. And most of the time, I don't think we had a clue. I do want to mention, though, 
pertaining to what you just said, there's a wonderful documentary on YouTube. I think it's a Japanese-made documentary. It's in English, but it's the making of Asia. It's about an hour long, and yeah. it's just Fagan and Becker at the board talking about all the things that you're discussing. What I think is really interesting about them is these bands that would fuse different music styles deserve to be rewarded. So for me, I also loved the Allman Brothers because they fused like rock and jazz on some level and blues. But what Steely Dan was doing, it's just so complex and so layered, as you say. And when you start to break it down and really understand what they were going for, you realize these guys could hear the songs in their head before they were completed. They knew what they wanted, and it was a matter of getting the players to give them that vision. So they would have the very best studio musicians, and the studio musicians wouldn't really know entirely what they were going for, but these guys knew. So when you hear a song like, say, Deacon Blues, it's got so many different levels to it, and the only way I believe they could have done that was to have that vision in their heads in advance, which means they really are kind of like these musical geniuses. You know, I think dissecting that and understanding it was a big part of our experience. So, you know, we would get the record and we would study the liner notes and we would know that Larry Carlton played the solo on Josie or somebody else played the solo on this song. And people don't do that today. There are no more liner notes. You don't know who's playing what nor do you really care. So it was a very different kind of way of experiencing music. And it was a funny story. We also liked this band, The Crusaders, which was this kind of jazz crossover band. And Larry Carlton was the guitarist. So the same group of people that were like listening to Asia, we went off to see them, see The Crusaders in concert because Larry Carlton, who played a lot of these solos for Steely Dan, was the guitarist. And we wanted to see him live. And we got there and he was no longer in the band. And I was famous for yelling out, where's Larry? <laughs> Which was maybe kind of rude. And the band leader kind of said, the gentleman asked, where's Larry Carlton? And they announced the new guitar player. But it just shows the level of sophistication on some level that we had. We knew who played on which album and who did what. And that was part of how we experienced these records. And so when you did that with Steely Dan, it was a very heightened thing. You knew Michael McDonald sang backup on Peg, you know, and then you followed Michael McDonald's career and you saw him go off to be in the Doobie Brothers. I guess it's a bit like kids who collected baseball cards or comics. You become like a, a music trivia fan. But today, I have no idea who plays on a Beyonce record. I have no idea who plays on a Jay-Z record, or if they do play. It's different. Yeah. I mean, this is such a quintessential artifact of L.A. record-making in the late seventies, mm -hmm. and like what, just say now you don't know who plays on like a Beyonce record or whatever. It's, I mean, a lot of the times it's just one Swedish guy, the <laughs> bunch of samples and a, a and a you know a MacBook Pro, right? But this is like the exact inverse of that. This is two guys operating. They're thought of as a band, but really they're like a production songwriting partnership. And they're casting each song for the exact right person to play this particular element of particular, right. you know, there's different drummers on different tracks. And the bass player is consistent pretty much on this record. But aside from that, like on Peg, I think they went through seven different guitarists before they found the right guy to play the solo on that. Yeah, well, I mean, actually, Peg's an interesting song because there's a personal story to that. It shows you how small a world we're in. So, you know, obviously, huge Steely Dan fan. My fiancé 
was this woman, Priscilla Ned, fabulous editor, love of my life, married 27 years. One of her best friends was an actress, Chelsea Field, and Chelsea was married to a drummer named Rick Morata. And I said, I know who Rick Morata is. He played <laughs> on Peg. And so we all went to Hawaii together before we got married. And I pulled Rick aside. My wife edited the movie Pretty Woman. And I said, I want to surprise her at the wedding because I played guitar badly. And I want to play Pretty Woman. And he said, great, you know, we'll get Jay Winding, who was a good friend of his, who was Madonna's musical director, to play keyboards. <laughs> and so we had this crack band at my wedding, and we surprised my wife when we played Pretty Woman. Years later, I reached out to Rick, because we became good friends, and he wound up doing the music for my documentary, Sneakerheads. But I had many conversations with him about exactly what we're talking about, and he said that they would just wear people out, like, you know, sometimes 10, 12 different guitar solos before they settle on the one they want. And, you know, he said, at the same time, you knew you were really doing something very special with them. And he had a very distinct style of drumming that fit Peg perfectly, and they stuck with him on that. But I don't think it was the easiest experience going in there and, and working with them, I think, you know, you had to be really patient. But the musicians felt the same way, like they were crafting something very special. And I guess it was for them too, it was just, they didn't feel the need to get it done in a particular amount of time. Mm. They had none of the kind of classic rock and roll, like let's be spontaneous, let's capture the moment kind of thing. It was about like, no, we've got a vision for this. We'll know the parts right when we hear it exactly the way we hear it in our heads. Yes. And we're... We can wait. We're going to try it as many times as we need to. We're going to spend as long on this as we need to until it's perfect in exactly the way we want it. this earlier in the very beginning it was a band there were four or five regulars eventually they sacrificed pretty much everybody except Danny Diaz the guitar player who they brought out to LA to work on some of their early records but you know they had songs like reeling in the years they did a lot of pop songs everything wasn't this like sophisticated jazz rock you know they were doing stuff that got a lot of play on the radio but I think they knew they were taking a certain chance with this record and it turned out their instincts were right. I mean, honestly, I couldn't even tell you if it was a big commercial success. I don't even know. I just know that amongst people that like the band, it, it, is, it is perceived as something of a classic. I think it did have, like, Peg was a hit. But what does that mean? A hit for Steely Dan is not satisfaction for the Rolling Stones. It's a different thing. 
Although, you know, it was such a different musical landscape or cultural landscape then that probably more people heard Peg when it was a hit than hear <laughs> any top 40 pop hit these days. Yeah, yeah, well, you know, and at the same time, a John Merritt song came out last year. I, I'm a fan of his guitar playing. I think he's a great musician. I think he does great stuff with Dead & Company. But he came out with this song, New Light, and I ran into his manager, who I've met a few times, and I go, hey, I haven't found the rest of the album. Where is it? He said, there isn't. Nobody does albums anymore. It's just singles. So all he did was he put out the song. That's it. <laughs> That's what you get. It's turning back into the 50s again. <laughs> it's Everything's going back full cycle. It's like you've got a jukebox over there in the corner. It's going to be that again. And well, I mean, it sort of is. That's what Spotify has turned us all back into. And then there's, of course, the whole fascination with vinyl now, which, you know, shows that everything old is new again. The thing that's nice about jukeboxes is, uh, yeah, they're singles, you know, and you can get pretty much anything on the internet for a dollar or two. Yeah, and I, there's trade-offs to that. I mean, I think a record like Asia is very much conceived as a piece, and like if you were just making songs to go out as individual units, some of the tracks on this record might not have ever existed, but it does put the value more back on individual songs, and mm -hmm. every song has to be... Like the idea of a filler song doesn't can't really exist anymore in a world mm -hmm. where each mm -hmm. song has to stand on its own two feet. And conversely, when you bought these records in the old days, you listen to the A side, you turn it over, you listen to the B side. It's forty minutes of your time. You know, it's an experience, and you know that the record is meant to be listened to that way. The songs were sequenced by the artists to be heard in a certain way. But now everything's a playlist, one from here, one from there. It's a very different, not necessarily wrong, it's just a different way of, of hearing music. I kind of miss being able to put on, you know, the first Crosby, Stills & Nash record. You were so blown away by how great the harmonies were and the guitar playing. And you want to hear the whole record. You know, you're like going, let me hear this one song. And the, and the fun of it, too, is to find something that isn't the single that just really connects with you. I had mentioned to you when, when we were trying to find which record here that I fell in love with this record that Laura Nero did. With It was Laura Nero with LaBelle backing her, which is Patti LaBelle and her sisters. And there was a song on there called The Bells. It is just one of the most incredible recordings. You ever get a chance, listen to that. Just those backup singers against this skinny little white girl from Connecticut. Brilliant. Truly brilliant. And so to me... It's more fun to find something that really resonates with you than here's the single, this is what you should be listening to, which we all fall into on some level. And then spinning out of that, I would say that was what made the Beatles the greatest ever because you had entire records where any song could have been the single. What song on Help wouldn't make a good single? What song on Rubber Soul could you not, any of them, and, and how many artists do you know where you know every track on the record? That's a sign of something that's really an enduring classic. I mean, you know, like on this record, when you have on the second side, you, you go from Peg to Home at Last to I Got the News to Josie. I mean, those are just all great. Probably one of my favorite songs on the record is Deacon Blues because it just has this incredible mix of styles in it. It's got mm. this beautiful horn section in the middle underneath the whole thing that has almost like a, it's almost like you're listening to the opening of the Jackie Gleason show or something. It has <laughs> that, that big band sound underneath yeah. it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So 
just a fun record, but every track on it, I think, is gold. I'll make it this time. I'm ready to cross that fine line. Learn to work the saxophone. I, I play just what I feel. Drink scotch whiskey all night long. And I behind the wheel. They got a name for the winners in the world. I, I want a name when I lose. They call Alabama the Crimson Tide. Call me Deacon Blues. Deacon Blues. Well, let's talk about that song. Let's talk about Deacon Blues. Yeah. Which I, I think is an interesting song, not just musically, but the lyric to that one is amazing. Yeah. It's this song about a guy who's fantasizing about being a, like an alcoholic sax player. Right. So, Learn to work the saxophone. Yeah. I play just when I feel. Yeah. They call Alabama the Crimson Tide. Call me Deacon Blues. Yeah. I don't know what all that means, but I, I have a general sense of what the song's about, which I found very often is what happened with them. You had very specific songs, like from other records, where they were telling a story. Don't Take Me Alive, the guy who's like ironically holding people hostage and wants to go down. But there are other songs where you just like, I'm not entirely sure, but this was a nice turn of the phrase. You did get a general sense in Deacon Blues of what it was about, but you never really fully know what these songs are about. Yeah, it's a slightly abstracted but like cynical kind of la noir yes um, and good turns of phrases yeah. these guys they were intellectuals they were very well read they talk about ulysses and they you know i mean they were these guys were intellectuals who could write a pop song it's kind of interesting yeah and they're so there's so many ways in which they are i read a quote once about them i think it might have been in a rolling stone review but it was something like they're the only it was in around the period when this came out, like Becker and Fagan are the only guys who seemed for whom like the sixties basically didn't happen. <laughs> and when you think about it, it's like every other big band of right. that era is like somehow rooted in some influence from the template that the Beatles and the Stones and all the bands of the British invasion era sort of set for what, you know, pop and rock music is about mm. what the personalities are like, what the point of view is. And these guys are just totally, it's like they just came out of more of the 50s jazz scene yeah, and beat I mean, poetry in that kind of world. They were steeped in music from the, even going back to the 20s. I mean, they, these guys knew their musical history. They know all the jazz history. They know where all these guys came from and, and how they developed their sound. And then they would introduce a little taste of that into the song. And it was, I think they were making records for them that turned out to find an audience and they certainly knew how to craft a pop song that you wanted to hear many times. I think for us, there was something about if you listen to their records, you're hearing the best players. And that was very yeah. appealing. Like this guy, Larry Carlton, became sort of my favorite session guitarist. Compared to who? There were lots of great session guitars, but if yeah. they're on the Steely Dan record, they must be really hot or this drummer, this particular drummer, this particular keyboard player, you know, and you kind of knew who they were, which is kind of scary. I'm wasting a lot of time. <laughs> I mean, it's like, 
it's a murderer's row if you look at the line of notes. Yeah. Like Larry Carlton, you mentioned Lee Rittenauer, Jim Keltner, Jim Horn, Timothy B. Schmidt from the Eagles, right. Michael McDonald, you know, Bernard Purdy, all like so many like incredibly, yeah. like, they're all legendary musicians in their own right and they're all just contributing different elements to which the by the way isn't that a great endorsement for the band isn't that subtextually telling us the audience you should pay attention to this yeah on some level like you know if you believe that those people really have talent and have something to offer and you can find them all together on one record you're going to want to listen to that and that's interesting to me because i think in america we grow up wanting to know about the best what's the best ice cream in los angeles what's the the best guitar made what people want to know what the best is so somehow these guys became known for attracting the best musicians so therefore you felt compelled to listen to it but at the same time you could hear some really uh sophisticated pop uh one of their other records that i really loved was called katie lied and interesting thing about that record there was something that happened in the production of the record where they were not happy with the way it sounded when it came off the press. Somebody made a mistake somewhere, and the record actually almost didn't come out. That has a song on it called Dr. Wu that we loved in college. It was one of our favorites. And on the last day of school, we gathered in a circle, a group of us kind of like holding hands and listened to this song one more time. And it's kind of a funny uh, callback to later. One of my best friends and his wife were both at school together. And they met Donald Fagan in Milwaukee, where my friend programs the public radio station there. And they asked to take a picture, which he reluctantly agreed to. And then my friend's <laughs> wife said, how come you don't play Dr. Wu anymore? And he said, we do. And that was the end of that conversation. <laughs> so... There's lots of stories and things. Be careful about meeting your heroes, you know. Well, especially him. I yeah. mean, like, he doesn't exactly strike me as the cuddliest. Like, <laughs> we were talking about Keith Richards before, who is pretty much the ultimate, like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'll play up to my legend. To right. the guild. Whereas Donald Fagan, you, you really sense that even, like, getting out on stage is kind of a inconvenience for him. Yeah, it's kind of a reluctant uh, thing, but he, you know, listen, the music is very accessible on some level and very complex on another. And that's a good combination, I think. Yeah, and it got more and more complex through their career. And this is kind of, to an extent, the apex of it. On Asia, like you're talking about reeling in the years earlier off from Can't Buy Thrill from right. their first record, where I, at least to my ears, it feels like they were going like, okay, we don't know how insular we can get with this. We need to have like something here that's going to like be accessible and get everyone in. Mm -hmm. And by this point, they've got the confidence to go like, we don't need to worry about anyone else. We're just going to make the record for ourselves and people will probably like it. But anyway. that cynicism is there in that song too. He talks about, you know, your friends and how he can't relate to who she wants to hang out with, his girlfriend. And it's still got the, it's still punctuated with that sarcastic wit, even underneath the pop sensibility, which is kind of their thing. Yeah. There's no, there's no middle ground. No. It's funny. He though. says, the weekend at the college didn't turn out like you planned. The things you passed for knowledge, I can't even understand. Like, he's yeah. like belittling his own friend. You know? <laughs> Yeah, it's not exactly peace and love, is right. it? Right. No, not at all. It's not the Young Rascals, you know, singing grooving, you know. Although, interestingly enough, in the New York Rock and Soul Review, which is this tour that Fagan did, 
he like had like several of the remaining rascals come out and do grooving. So he likes that music too. Yeah. They love R&B. Yes. And like... Yes. I think... I can't remember if it was Becker or Fagan talked about like for losing interest in pop music once R&B went white or like once like R&B early rock and roll started transitioning from it being primarily black artists to being primarily white artists. It was a sellout to them. Well, that's that's when they kind of checked out. But like the earlier... They they still love that earlier... So like Little Richard, that kind of era of rock and pop. And it's funny that you say that because when I think of music, which shows I don't have as much in common with them as I would like, I think I was blessed to be born. I was born in 1956... I was 14 years old when I saw my first concert, which was The Who, with the Jefferson Airplane opening, playing Tommy. I grew up on the Beatles. I grew up on the Stones. To me, the 60s are the absolute prime rock and roll years. Led Zeppelin II, I took that record home. I put on my chunky old headphones, and I heard the guitar solo going back and forth from side to side, and I thought... I had discovered, it was like taking drugs, just listening to that record. And they would throw all that away. They don't even care. they make fun of the Eagles on one of their songs. Like, you know, it's interesting. Like, it's not their taste, but I think, I think it was perfect timing. I was lucky because there was so much good music coming out of the British Invasion and then a lot of American bands catching on from that. But a lot of great stuff started with the British groups, you know? I mean, it was the Beatles and the Stones were at the top, you know? And the density of the great... I mean, you have arguments about, like, is music as good now as it was then? And, like, you can, yes. you can say, like, they're the best music that's coming out today might be as good as the best music of any other era. But in the 60s, just there was so much of the best. You look at any year and, like, look at 1967 and it's like 40 classic albums came out that year. Right. And what was in the water is my question. And, you know, one thing led to another. See, it goes back to if you you had to be a student, you had to pay attention to understand, to have context. If you were a fan of Clapton, you would somehow get to Traffic and Stevie Winwood. And then Winwood and Clapton would go out together on tour and people would remember that that was, you know, from that band back in the day. I don't remember the name of it. Blind Faith. Blind Faith. But you kind of knew all the players. You know how these two people connected and what the overlap was and that Dave Mason was in traffic briefly. You know this stuff, right? And I'm sorry to just be beating a dead horse. Maybe it doesn't matter 
but I I don't feel like there's that context anymore. I, I think it's pretty hard to piece all this stuff together, and it sort of like bothers me. I think it's there's no context, or there's all the context, <laughs> but the onus is on you to make that choice. Whereas it, you know back then it's like you get a record, the liner notes are right there. It's like you have to want to read them, but right. it's not. You don't have to seek them out. They're it's right next it's to right the thing you're you. listening to. Yes. Whereas now you can hear a song on Spotify entirely as like sound with no absolutely no context at all. Or you can hear a song and go, that's interesting. And then five seconds on Google, you've read like 17 articles about what guitars everyone played on that track. <laughs> that's a and, good point. You know. That's a good point. And, uh, you know, there are people that come along. I remember somebody saying, you should listen to this Kendrick Lamar record to Pimp a Butterfly. And it was one of the most compelling pieces of music. And you have to listen. Everybody should listen to that album from front to back, like in the old days. Because that is one incredible piece of music and great lyrics and that's like a throwback record to me even though it's hip-hop he's got something to say and it's got great samples in it and it's just a really well-produced record so i'm not saying i don't want to sound like that guy guy oh this is all crap there's a lot of great stuff out there i just don't i'm not able to connect the dots as easily maybe that bothers me a little bit i don't know sort of like carol king record would come out tapestry you think oh it's pretty frothy kind of like easy listening record you know who's playing on that record some of the greatest musicians or you listen to james taylor record and you know that danny kuchmar was doing all the guitar work or here's another one you ever want to hear a great live album it's too late to stop now van morrison up at the roxy i think they recorded it up there it's like every track is brilliant and you knew it was john platania on guitar and jeff lay bess on piano and I guess I'm, you know, revealing the fact that when you're younger, you're paying more attention to things like this. I don't really, when I'm producing a television show and it's 13 hours per season, maybe I just don't have as much time anymore. (laughs) And maybe these kids are diving into it in their own way. Maybe they are. Maybe I just don't know that. I mean, at a certain point, there's like, there's a lot of music out now. Mm. There's, you know, and it's all available. Right. And there's only so many hours in the day. Right. You don't just have access to whatever the records that came out in the last couple of years were that you can find in a record store. Yeah. And then a bit more if you're a collector or whatever, it's like everything that's ever been recorded is available instantly right now. Yeah. Well, it's funny that you say that too, because, you know, there was this great experience that we used to have. You go to Tower Records, say, on Sunset, Friday night, you don't have a date that night or whatever, so you, you go out with your buddies and you... Then you go over to Tower and you're just flipping through and you're right. Maybe that's a total of 200 records that you're choosing from. Here, it's infinite. It's just, it goes on forever, right? It's infinity. You go on Apple Music, you can find anything. Yeah. So maybe it's not fair to make that comparison. It's just different. You know, I think the same can be said for what's going on in the television business right now. There's so much anxiety about it. which show to watch. You couldn't possibly say, oh, no, I'm on top of all of it. Yeah. You can there, sample things. Aren't there like 300 drama series? 487 new shows last year. Jesus Christ. How is that possible? So I think you can sample things. You can say, oh, I watched an episode of Fauda. It was really nice. Uh, or I, I, I checked out Atlanta. That's a good show. Then there are the ones that you have to watch all the way through. Like I watched both seasons of Ozark. I watched all three seasons of Fargo. 
for whatever reason. I can't tell you why. I watched the first season of Bloodline, but I didn't watch the second season. So there's some sort of analogy there. There's just so much coming at us in this world. And technology has pushed all of that. So it becomes harder to ask people to commit to the whole thing, I guess, right? Yeah. And you're also now, it's like, it's not just, am I going to watch Atlanta or Fargo? It's, am I going to watch Atlanta or Fargo or The West Wing or Get Smart right. or any other TV show that's that I want to call back? Yeah. Yeah. It's such a good point. There's definitely some anxiety there about, am I missing something? Right. Mm. not the smoothest segue speaking of missing things uh-huh. have you had the chance to see steely dan in concert yes i actually i have a son who's now 23 andrew it's very important to me to get my kids to be familiar with the music i grew up on so when my kids were little from the age of about five to ten i drove them to school every day and i made sure that they heard every Beatles song ever recorded and they're big Beatles fans now that's good parenting. Yeah, I was. And then I took my son to see Steely Dan twice. Once downtown at like LA Live. And it was a crack show, very good show. But it was just like a bunch of different things they were doing. And then really memorable show. We saw him do the Royal Scam at Universal. They used to have a concert place up there, which they don't have anymore. And Larry Carlton played live oh, wow. with them. And that was... That was pretty special. Like, I honestly don't believe that... I've probably seen them live five or six times. It was pretty hard for that to match up to what was on the record. But that night was really special, and they, they had it going. That's cool. They've been doing, I guess, in the last few years... I think they started doing them before Water Becker passed away. Full album shows. Right. Like, doing residencies at the, at Beacon, the Beacon yes, in New York, that. where they run through the whole... Like, first night is all of Can't Buy a Thrill, and then through mm-hmm. to, you know, Roll Scam in Asia. Or, and then you have people who are going every night. Yeah. Who are literally going to catch it because they don't want to miss the good show. Yeah. I and mean, that's the thing. Like, that's so it's a license to print money if you've got a diehard fan base because then why wouldn't you come back every night? You know the set list is going to be different. Right. Correct. And it's very much like what the Grateful Dead had as a touring band or now Dead & Company. Uh, we went to see the Dead & Company in Chicago a couple of summers ago. I mean, you know, you just go both nights. There's no question. You're not going to, like, pick one. You just go both. Yeah. I both admire the stamina of fans who, like, can follow a whole tour like that. But I also admire artists who recognize that they have fans who want to do that and then make the show rewarding for that kind of experience. The same way, like, Bruce Springsteen does, Mm -hmm. where Mm -hmm. the show is a completely unique beast from night to night. Yes. So if you do do a whole tour, you'll get these special experiences that are different from each show. Yeah, and I think it comes down to personal choice. For example, we were talking earlier about the Elton John farewell tour, and you can now look at setlist.com, and it's the same set every single night. There is no variation. 
not to be critical of that that's his choice but it's pretty exciting when you don't know what's yeah. coming up i think that's more in a certain way there's a certain preference to it but you know everybody has to test to decide for themselves the other thing that's kind of interesting speaking of tangents and non sequiturs is how everybody is replaceable for example Fleetwood Mac just replaced Lindsay Buckingham and they've got Neil Finn Neil Finn and, Mike and also Mike Campbell and like if you're a big Fleetwood Mac fan that's a big loss Lindsay Buckingham but there's a little part of you going hey I'd like to hear that guy from Crowded House sing Fleetwood Mac songs I wonder what it sounds like and Mike it. Campbell's a great guitar player I saw him in Chicago a few months ago it was amazing amazing I, I, I didn't miss Lindsay Buckingham once the whole night and same thing happened with the Eagles replaced their guitar player and, you know, in about two seconds. And, you know, it kind of goes against your instinct, which is that there's only one guy that can play like that. Not true. There's a lot of really incredible musicians that can copy parts. It's sort of like on some level, it creates a whole new appetite when there's a new makeup. You just want to check it out, right? Yeah, and sometimes it can be really enlivening. It's like The Who, for example. Uh-huh. I mean, much like obviously, I wish I got, could get to see him with John Entwistle. Right. But after he passed away and Pino Palladino came into the band, it really like reoriented the dynamics within the band and like gave them a second life, really, in a lot of ways. And, you know, we miss Keith Moon. But that was like a different time and a different sound. And they're probably a little bit more precise now, a little, yeah. few, a lot less mistakes, that kind of thing. They, by the way, were fantastic at Desert Trip. Yeah, that was my highlight of the weekend. They were amazing, right? Yeah. You were there too. Yeah. We didn't run into each other. Well, maybe, maybe we did. We wouldn't have known at the time. <laughs> no. I think my favorite moment of that was during the Stone set where Jagger comes out about you know after the second or third song it's like hello welcome to the catch em before they croak festival <laughs> farewell stuff going on even though a part of you knows that they may come back yet again and i i've seen a lot of these shows and i i fall right into the i don't want to miss it if it's the last one and you know okay it's you know if you want to be really cynical you go oh yeah sure it's elton john's farewell tour but he'll be back in vegas in four years but there's something kind of sad about it but also emotionally bonding so when I took my wife, Priscilla, you know, when we went to see Elton John, it was very romantic and personal and brought back a lot of memories of when we first met. And, you know, I think that's fine. But, you know, the cynic in me goes, nah, this is not a, he'll be back. Well, you know, it, I always pay attention to the fine print on those because, like, with, for example, with Elton, it's not the last shows he'll ever play. It's the last tour. Ah, 
So if he comes and does a Vegas residency, he's not contradicting anything he said. Okay, you'll point that out to the millions of people who thought this was the last time he was going to perform. <laughs> I feel bad about people like artists when they're in that. It's sort of like when bands break up and then someone asks them in interview, "So you ever going to get back together?" It's like, no. Why the Why the hell would I want to do that? We're never getting right. back together. Six, seven, eight years later, it's like, okay, we're getting back together. They weren't lying. I'm, I'm sure when they right. broke up, they, they were, really thought it was yeah. over. Well, it's you like remember a the that gets divorced and then later they like each other again. The ultimate album title, "Hell Freezes Over." Yeah, the Eagles one. <laughs> That's what they said when "Hell Freezes Over." But you know, I think most of us are pretty happy when these bands reunite. You know, the question yeah. is whether they've still got it. That's really what it comes down to. I'm sure you've experienced it, and I have big disappointments on that front, and mm. also. You know, wonderful, happy surprises like ELO went out last year and I took my daughter to that and it was a pitch perfect, fantastic show, great experience. Everybody sounded great, played great. You just don't know. It's a little bit of roulette, right? It is. And like, you never quite know. It's hard to know until you're there seeing it for yourself whether someone actually still has it or not. Because sometimes... And I don't know how you feel about mm. like Bob Dylan these days, for example, but like I've seen him, I think three or four times in the last 10 years and they were all pretty terrible. But, you know, a lot of diehard Bob Dylan fans go to and see him and they rave about it. And they I don't understand that. Yeah. I mean, I went, I've seen him and I just feel like he's kind of fucking with the audience a little bit and trying to be as obscure as possible to be as far away from the show that you want to hear. That's what he's doing. And after a while, it was, I found it alienating. doesn't mean I wouldn't go back and just love so many of his records, but I'd rather remember him from those days than the current days. Even at Desert Trip, he started off with a couple of songs you knew, and then it just degraded into something of like, what is he playing right now? And let me go get a beer. Well, the problem is he could play all the songs you want to hear, but you can't really tell that that's what he's playing. You get halfway through the song and he's like, oh, I was, oh, this is like a Rolling Stone. Okay. So what's behind that? Let me ask you this question. Maybe okay. you understand better than me. This audience has made him one of the greatest success stories in pop music. We rode with him when he went acoustic to electric. He is considered maybe the greatest writer in the history of pop music. Why not give the fans what they want? What's motivating that? What's behind that? Because he knows what he's doing. He knows he's messing with you. See, I have this theory about Bob Dylan's whole career being about fucking with his audience. Like, almost everything he's ever done since the start has had a certain element of, you think you know who I am? Well, fuck you. Mm -hmm. Like, you think I'm this, like, a acoustic political folk singer? Well, I'm now I'm a psychedelic singer-songwriter. You think I'm that? Or mm -hmm. now I'm a blues rock guy you think i'm a like counterculture blues rock guy now i'm gonna sing like soft country songs and now i'm a gospel singer and now i'm a blues like just on and on and on and now i'm doing a victoria's secret commercial and it's just like you never can define him but i just don't understand why he plays shows mm -hmm. like i literally do not understand what the point of it is for him right if it was just like if he just wanted to go out and play stuff that sounds like his recent records, he could just go out and play the songs from his recent records. When he plays those songs in the gigs, they sound great. But why play Blown in the Wind if the audience can't recognize it? He can still sing melodies. 
he went to the White House a few years ago and saying the times they are a changing for Obama. I can't remember what the occasion was. Right. And he sang the melody and he Did played acoustic guitar. The way guitar. it's played. Yeah, and you're like, oh, he so can he still can do, it do if that. He wanted to. It's a choice, but I just don't understand what the pleasure is in it for him at this point. Yes, and reverting back to Steely Dan. You could easily see a world where they're like, we're not going to give the audience what they want because they were pretty cynical and they were sort of uh, unpredictable. But in the end, most of their shows were greatest hit sets, not with the exception of playing the albums. They were pretty good businessmen. I think they knew, you know, if people are going to come back, they've got to hear what they want to hear. And it's just a very interesting, profound it's a whole other topic for another show of yours, but like I've heard of people who go to see Van and he comes out and plays 32 minutes and just walks off and they're like, what was that? What just happened here? So, you know, a lot of these artists, they're not very predictable, right? That's they're artists. Yeah. And there's an extent to which is like, that's great because that sort of volatility is part of the reason why you engage with these sort of larger than life artistic figures. But at the same time, it's like, you know, I paid 150 bucks for a concert ticket. I just want to have a good time. Right. And I expect to hear Moondance. Yeah. But you're right. Like the Steely Dan thing. I went and saw Steely Dan last year, which at this point is Donald Fagan right. and a bunch of really great... Crack um, musicians. Yeah, crack right. musicians. And they played Peg. They played Deacon Blues. Right. They played Reeling in the Years. It was like, you know, they played Dirty Work. You know, sure. it's like, a, you know, it's pretty much everything that a semi-casual Steely Dan fan would be like, tick, 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 tick. Yeah. It all sounded great. Great gig. But for some reason, you know, they'll give the audience what they want more than Van Morrison or Bob Dylan will. But they won't play Dr. Wu. Well, <laughs> apparently they do. So when you go back and listen to Asia these days, when you put the record on, what's the experience like for you now and how is it different to when you were at Northwestern and you were getting stoned and listening to it for the first time? It's incredibly familiar. I would say that there's very little I haven't already heard on the record, but it's like comfort food. It's an immediately associative thing. So if I hear... Deacon Blues, I immediately am transported back to this beautiful campus where I went to school, which is right on Lake Michigan, and I'm remembering my friends, and the song just transports me to another time, and it wasn't always the most comfortable time. You know, you're trying to figure out your way. Am I going to make it? What's going to happen to my life? You know, I was a journalism student, and 
had a pretty famous father and you know am I going to be able to get my own career going and everything but looking back now I, I'm very very happy person I love my life I got a great family I've had some success in my career so when I hear that music it's kind of like a port in the storm is that a, a good way to explain it is immediately familiar but very melodic and beautiful and you know while I don't fully understand all of the lyrics I know them all you know <laughs> that's that's what it is it's it's kind of like your memories of a great summer camp you went to or something it's kind of nostalgic for me but not cheesy you know certain nostalgic feels really corny if I were to go back and hear I don't know people love them but if I hear an Everly Brothers song that doesn't feel very hip to me but Steely Dan remains cool they're cool forever you know, which is probably why it's one of my favorites, right? I don't get tired of it. It seems relevant today, and it seems executed at the highest possible level, which is what I aspire to when I make a television show or I produce a movie. I'm trying to make something that will stand the test of time, and that's what they do. They're everything they do. Like, there's really no record of theirs that I wouldn't go back to happily pretzel logic is a great some people think that's their best record it's definitely the best record title yeah whatever it means <laughs> but countdown to ecstasy i mean i know all these records are great but asia was the one where they felt like they just got close to the sun well that's a pretty good note to end on fantastic david thanks so much for talking to me about your favorite album i really enjoyed it and i'm a huge fan of the podcast by the way and you know what i love hearing is musicians talking about their favorite stuff just to mention like the steve jordan one i thought was really terrific because he was really interested in a lot of stuff that was much more center field than i would have expected big beatles fan like wow that's surprising a drummer you know like why but then you hear Questlove or somebody, and they're the same way. You know, it's like a lot of us are, are drawn to the same things, right? Yeah, the Beatles, the one common denominator. It really is, right? Yeah. All right, thank you. Thanks thank for coming you. by. That's it for another episode of My Favourite Album. Thanks for listening. I've been Jeremy Dillon. You can follow me at Mr. Jeremy Dillon. Like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash myfavouritealbum. Subscribe on iTunes. And if you dig the show, please leave a review. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.